Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and as you know by now, on this program, we build an entire campaign for you from scratch to run for your game group as early as tonight. At present, we're working up a campaign for Deadlands Classic, so get your notepad out and join me as we create another portion of our ongoing campaign. And as a plus, my home group plays the game we've created, so later on in the show we'll do a recap of last week's session. But of course, we can't start building this week's session until we recap last week's session. So, as we began the session, we provided our party with the information they'd gotten in their mission folder for Mr. Norwood. In it was a pretty thorough description of the plantation Ezekiel Monroe owns, what it produces, and the notes on the yearly income. They also got information on the workers, the guards, and the fact that pretty much all of them will shoot intruders on sight. They were also given a sheet with names of potential contacts and where in Little Rock they could be found. We built out the city of Little Rock a bit so that you'd have information to work with to draw up your maps, if you're one of those who's so inclined to do so. The party made their way to Little Rock, then almost immediately sought out the sources they'd been provided, and they got some very interesting information about Ezekiel Monroe and the plantation he owns, primary among them being that he's got a small army of men, separate from his regular security, that seem to be guarding him and his house personally. After gathering their information, they decided to scope out the plantation to get their own information about what they were about to get into. They were basically able to confirm what they'd been told previously, and they managed to get away and back into the city before they were noticed. Or not, depending on how good your group is and the decisions they made. We spent a lot of time working out multiple possibilities, but I don't have an hour for the review, so we'll just assume they succeeded. And yes, I'm aware of what happens when you assume. Let's move on. Realizing they're dealing with hired hands with Gatling weapons, they most likely decided to get some of their own, so purchases needed to be made and they probably had to wait for them to get delivered. But once they got their gear, they worked out their plan of action to breach the security of the plantation and get to one Ezekiel Monroe. There might have been a quite a bit of combat to get there, but there was certainly a lot of it once they got to the house. Oh, and I forgot to tell you last week, give your group one white chip for each combat they survived. Once they got to Monroe, he had five of his men in there with him, and the group had their first run-in with a bad guy who isn't a generic bad guy. We built this dude up personally to be a huckster. And after we dealt with the finale, which we'll assume is the death of Monroe that we had planned for, we wrapped that part of the creation and built the character of Ezekiel Monroe. Once that was done, we wrapped creation for last week's show. So, this week we pick up where we left off, which is with the group in Monroe's house, post-defeat of the Muffin Man, and thank God I'm finally done writing that because my group giggles like little kids every time I say it. Or I get the, the Muffin Man! You probably did too. Sorry about that. I'm going to try to be a little bit better about those names moving forward. Okay, so we have to acknowledge that with all the gunfire, the regular guards will most likely be working to surround the house, so the group is working... <laughs> they're working on a ticking clock at this point. If your entire group spends about five minutes doing a quick search, they find some paperwork and a surprise they weren't expecting. Let's look at the paperwork first. One sheet has a name on it. Baker, Bronson Atwell, Deadwood, Dakota... Entrepreneur, 14%, Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa. Another sheet signed by the banker notes that Ezekiel Monroe will be responsible for the business in Arkansas and Missouri and will, quote, keep whatever monies come in once the board is presented with its 50%. 
end quote. One final sheet has blood spatter on it and writing they don't recognize, but it is legible. Sir, we followed your orders as laid out. Colson and his men weren't in the compound any longer, so we were unable to get to them. However, we were able to get word to Dodge City for the story you wanted passed along to be given to Colson. The job you requested in Triumph went well, and all signs we left there will point directly to Colson, so he should shortly no longer be an issue. The banker will be pissed if he ever finds out what we've done, but not nearly as mad as the Mormons will be when that batch of shooters comes looking for them. Your time spent on the inside was well spent, as based on what we've seen, those guys will do pretty much whatever you need them to do, so long as they believe it's sincere. Signed, Driscoll. And yes, I apologize for using somewhat salty language in that, but for my group, I wanted them to really understand that, that these guys think they've got away with something. We're going to set that to the side because that's something that comes up later, but they do get that letter. There is handwriting on the bottom of the letter. It's the same handwriting as on the note that outed the banker, so we're assuming it's the same, and we have to assume it's Monroe's. Need to figure out which one had the cojones to pull this off. Not Butcher because Banker has an inside man. Not Snake Oil style. Need to get more info. The surprise they found is when somebody opens a closet door. Instead of an actual closet, instead there's a ladder going through the floor leading a very long way down. Obviously, we want our group to go this way, and we want them to do that because standing their ground or attempting to go out the front door is going to be suicide. And we don't really want to end the game just yet. Or at least I don't anyway. I'm having too much fun writing it. However, if your group is feeling like a fight or is feeling slightly suicidal, let them do it. We provided all the stats on the regular guards last week, as well as the bonus stuff for the uniformed fellows that Monroe uses. And yeah, there's going to be about 25 of those left. And of course, they're going to come out as well. So you've got about 50 regular guard and 25 special ones. If your group can pull that off, we should probably just stop the game because nothing we do moving forward is going to possibly be able to top that. So if they pull this all off, give them two blue, two red, and four white if they're dumb enough to try it and lucky enough to pull it off. It is possible they can get the regular guard to cut and run if they take out the special ones, but they're going to all fight until the special guards go down. And if the group would try to be tactical and say set up a bottleneck of some type in the house, at some point somebody's going to light the house on fire. So there's going to be that as well. Now, I, I do need to point out, I am not trying to intentionally kill either your group or my group. That being said, if they make bad choices, I'm willing to allow it to happen. All right, so let's get back to that ladder. The group quickly realizes they're going down well below the ground floor of the house. They're in the dark, so hopefully they've got light. Otherwise, this is going to be really interesting. They can estimate they're about 15 feet or so underground, and there's one tunnel that they can take that runs away from the hole they just came down. If they don't have any light, I want you to play the darkness up a bit and give them some spooky vibes. I'm not putting anything in here because of how much they've probably already been through, but if you want to drop a little creepy crawly down here, please feel free to do so. The reality of the situation is they're going to travel about a half a mile through this tunnel, which has a number of twists and turns that are going to make it feel longer. Oh, and if they check the walls to see how old the tunnel seems to be, because Aniston did that the last time we had a tunnel, it's basically worn flat, so the assumption is going to be here that it's been here a very long time. 
The first group member up the ladder on the other end quickly realizes they're in a room about the size of an outhouse. In fact, they can see light coming in through cracks in the walls, and they quickly realize it is a structure that is outdoors. Fortunately, there is a lantern in it, and it is full of oil, so they can light it, and now they have light. The door has three latches on it. Those are easy to throw, no rolls required. When they open up and go outside, it really is an outhouse, just with no seat in it which means it's a building that's supposed to look like an outhouse. Surrounded on three sides with really tall trees, and there are some shorter ones on like the fourth side that seem to be blocking the immediate view, unless you were really looking for it. So, taking a moment to get outside the trees and collect their bearings, again, no rolls, they can figure out they're about a half mile north of the plantation, which means they are well into the trees, and that's because there's 880 yards and a half mile, and 300 yards of trees were chopped down. So... They're 580 yards inside the tree line. Now, if it was me, I'd just leave the horses there, walk the five miles back to town. Why draw attention to yourself? Your group, and I'm going to bet my group, are going to try it. So, there is a chance that the horses are already gone. I think we're just going to let chance make this call. Take a D6 and roll it. One through three is low, four through six is high. Before you roll, pick a player, ask them to call out high or low. You decide which one is the right answer. If the player gives it, the horses are still there, provided they weren't left on the plantation proper. If not, or if the horses were left on the plantation proper to begin with, they are gone. So they're either going to walk or ride five miles back to Little Rock. If they're walking, it's an hour and 40 minutes, though you could say 90 minutes and I wouldn't argue with that. Riding, obviously, they'll get there a whole lot faster. We're going to go at 25 minutes because you know they're going to be galloping full tilt boogie. Either way, they are on the clock. The first person from the plantation will arrive in Little Rock at about two hours. So if they don't get to it, they're going to have a fight on their hands in a city. The biggest issue they're going to run into, because we're assuming they did this at night, there are no trains running. It's also going to mean there's no stagecoaches running. So they're going to have to quickly check out of their hotel and get riding, which means if they don't have horses, they're going to have to steal some. So work your way through that. Give them some horses, have them make some sneak rolls. As long as they make the rolls, they get the horses, they get away. If they don't, well, that's going to be fun of its own kind and um, play that how you will. Remember, horse thieves got hung in the Old West. Now, any direction out of town is going to do because they're going to be riding as hard as they can for a couple of hours to put Little Rock as far behind them as possible before they stop to rest. Oh, and if they wound up taking out Monroe during the day, they're still going to be on a two-hour limit, but... There's always a chance that the train or a stage is going to leave. Listen, stagecoach isn't going to be that much faster. So in your opinion, if you want there to be a train for them to take back to Denver, so be it. Now, we know if the group is already working for O'Toole, they're going to want to head north and west anyway because that's the general direction to Denver. If they're not, again, they can go whatever way they want to go, run for a couple hours, stop and regroup, and you can have them figure out where they're going to go next. Maybe they go to Albuquerque. Maybe they go to Dakota. We'll do Albuquerque in a minute. Spoiler. <laughs> so just pause there and you can forward to my stuff on Albuquerque. Dakota is going to be next week. So if they want to go to Dakota... Hopefully your group is uh, not nearly as far ahead as mine is and you've got the time for next week's episode. Anyway, enough blabbering. Let's move on. 
Regardless of how the group gets there, they're eventually going to make their way back to Denver if they're working for O'Toole. Of course, they're going to need to get word to Mr. Donovan about the job. He's going to make them wait three days. So they've got downtime to get some things done or just to rest. I can assure you, one of the things that my group is going to do, if they didn't catch a train to Denver, because if they were on a train, they would have done this while they were on the train. If they had to ride back, as soon as they've got a couple of minutes in a hotel room, they are going to make their own note about the whole deal that went on in Triumph. And they're probably going to start working out, trying to figure out what happened, who it is, and uh, who they're adding to their list of people that must die. Now, I'm not going to give the information that they're going to find here, because they're pretty much going to find that information as they adventure along. So even they won't get it at this point in time. On day three, Mr. Donovan actually comes to their hotel and knocks on one of their hotel doors. He's got the three grand that was promised to them by Mr. O'Toole, and he's got another folder. He's got the same deal for this one as the last. Three grand up front, three grand upon completion. The target this time is Zebediah Thomas, also known as the Butcher. See, I told you Albuquerque was the next job. Now, there's, there's not much in the folder. It mentions something that the group already knows, which is the Albuquerque Daily News. What they didn't know is that Zebediah is the owner. He's also the publisher, which means he should be there every day. It also notes he has a teenage daughter in Dodge City who he does not have a relationship with anymore. Her name is Alexis Miranda, and the report doesn't state why she doesn't use his last name. It does state that she is working as the assistant editor of the Dodge City Times. They are also given two names for possible contacts in Albuquerque. Juan Marquez, who owns the Distilleria Rolling Sun, and Maria Smith-Sanchez, who owns the Hotel Gato. There is also a letter in here. Mr. Banker, it has come to my attention that our dear butcher has gotten himself into a situation with the Shannon gang in Albuquerque. He apparently borrowed a large sum of money from them and has run into issues with paying them back. However, it has come to our attention that they might have come into possession of his board name as well as the name of the other board member he knows of. As we know, this cannot be allowed. Snake oil salesman and I have spoken and we agree that if you can find someone willing to deal with this situation as well, we are ready to authorize $10,000 as payment, Undertaker. Now, if they read this before Norwood leaves, he will agree to give them an additional $5,000 up front with the rest of the money upon completion. They are also to acquire the name the gang knows and return it to him. Now, if they don't read it first, if they're still in Denver, they can call a meeting and Norwood will meet with them and make the same deal. However, if they're already on their way to Dodge City or to Albuquerque, they can wire him once they get to either place because we know that they'll do that and Norwood will send a wire back to the bank in Dodge for them to get their five grand. So now they have a choice to make. Do they head to Dodge City first or do they ride over the mountains and head to Albuquerque? Smart decision, as I would have noted before, is to head to Dodge City. They can take a train to Dodge, the Santa Fe Trail picks up there, and it makes for theoretically an easier ride to Albuquerque. So for our purposes, off to Dodge City it is. Now, I don't know about your group, but mine has gotten rather comfortable with riding trains whenever possible and just paying extra to transport their horses. So let's do the math, shall we? Now, we've handled ride and trade times before here, so I'm not going to take up the space with doing them again. However, I didn't do the math for train tickets before, and since I used the script for the show in my own group, maybe I need to go ahead and do this now so I've got it when I run next week. It's 365 miles from Denver to Dodge City. At $0.05 cents a mile, that comes out to $18.75. 
cents per ticket. Also, I usually forget to charge them extra for the horses, which I guess I really should be doing. There's no number or formula for that in the book, so I'm just gonna make up a number. Let's say 10 bucks a horse. Seems fair. So it's gonna be $28.74 per person if they're taking a horse. Obviously, if they're not, take 10 bucks off. Anyway, since we had some drama the last time our heroes took a train between Denver and Dodge City, let's give them a break this time and not do anything. Of course, as usual, if the group decides to make the seven and a third day ride, give them an encounter or two. This time I want you to pick a creepy crawly out of the Marshall's handbook and drop it on them. Of course, you give them a point of grit for dealing with it and one white chip each. Now, we noted in our previous session involving Dodge that the city is detailed in the Marshall's handbook, so you can bookmark that section for your game prep and note some of the places your group might decide to go. They have their choice of hotels on the list, and for the first time in this game, we're going to throw them a curveball. You see, by this point in our game's timeline, we're getting to the point where the cattle drives are starting. Ergo, there are a lot of tired, thirsty, and randy cowboys running around town, so the group can find rooms, but they're going to have to double up no choice. And the bite in the tail about that is that they're going to still each get charged the going rate, even if they're sharing a room. On top of that, I want you to double the rates for the rooms. After all, they're going to be at a premium. Once that's taken care of, the group should probably go to the Dodge City Times to seek out Alexis Miranda. Times building isn't hard to find, but what they get there, they do not see a woman in the building anywhere. They can inquire from one of the people there, but they're not going to tell, and I don't care how good the roles are your group makes. Let them make the roles. No problem. I don't care if they manage to roll a 50. They fail. Yes, we're using GM Fiat on this one. For story purposes only, of course. <laughs> if they think to leave their names or something, they will be taken, but that really doesn't impact what's going to happen next, if we're being honest. The rest of the day provides opportunity for your group to get into trouble if you so choose. Remember I did note there's a lot of cowboys been out on the trail for a long time. So yeah, it's always possible there could be an encounter or two there. Of course, remember, you don't want to fire shots in Dodge or you gotta deal with Erp. Just saying. Of course, if you want to drop something in here that's especially tailored to your group, please do so. In fact, and I always forget to mention that, you can do that at any point in this game. If you've got something that's specially tailored for your group, especially their backstories, at any point in this game, if you feel it's a great place to drop it in, do that. What I'm trying to do is provide you with the storyline that is intended to be the underlying theme of your entire campaign. You should always feel free to add the flavor to make it your own taste. Now, at some point in the evening, most likely when the group is settling into a tavern or a gambling establishment to get a little R&R &R before they make their next move, a young woman approaches one of the players, preferably one who's just sitting and drinking. It needs to be pointed out, she is dressed about as provocatively as you can get. She is definitely painted up. Quite honestly, she looks like she's a working girl. Now, if all of your group are the ones that are sitting there just drinking and getting R&R, &R, she will stop at whomever it is believed is the group leader. By this point in the campaign, it should be pretty obvious who that leader is. She will kind of cozy on up to them. She will lean into their ear and she will whisper that she is Alexis Miranda and she'd like a moment to speak to them, but they need to do it privately. The rest of the group will notice this uh, young lady, very attractive looking. However, and, and if this player wants to make the roles, fine. Target number is only going to be like three. It is going to be obvious through the sincerity in her voice 
Plus, the look in her face when the player actually looks at her and locks eyes. She is who she says she is, and she wants what she says she wants. She finishes talking to that player by whispering again, just follow my lead. So when she goes to stand up fully, she's going to grab the player by both cheeks, give him a really long kiss. Then she's going to grab him by the hand, smile, and go to take him to a room upstairs. Hopefully the player plays along. Hopefully the player that's the leader of the group isn't shy about this sort of thing. Obviously, if you're playing this game with kids... You need to make whatever changes you feel you need to make. Obviously, she's not a working girl. You do what you think is going to work best because right now off the top of my head, I'm not coming up with a good idea. So save me on this one. She will head upstairs with the player, take the player to the furthest room, let them go in first, then she will follow and then she'll close and lock the door behind her. Once she's there, she stops the player from talking. She points out that they don't have a lot of time in here. She confirms that she is who she says she is. Again, if the player wants to make rolls, targets a three, they should not fail this. She has read stories about the group. She's heard rumors about some of the things they've done. She'd like to meet with the group as a whole and discuss everything that she knows, but she cannot risk doing it in Dodge. She knows that she knows she's been followed for a long time, and the only way she knew she'd be certain she could, she could get here to get a word with these guys was to dress as she dressed and do what she did. She'll tell them she has people camped out at the train station, so she knew like right after they got off the train that they were here. Now, if they rode into town, it'll be that she knew the second they rode into town because, of course, she's got people all over town. Now, she had also heard about their visit to the newspaper, so it doesn't matter really whether they left their names or not. The visit to the newspaper was able to confirm what her other sources had told her. She asks that the group meet her at a farm a couple of hours ride north of Dodge around noon tomorrow. It's called Bailey's Farm. There is no signage that's going to indicate that that's the name. She just tells them, follow First Street north out of town, and then continue straight for about two hours. She tells them she will, they will run right into it, that they cannot miss it. She will shake the player's hand as an agreement to meet. Then she will suggest the player exit the room first and continue to play the part for about five minutes or so, because that'll give her time to sneak through the crowd and out the back door. Now, the player in question is going to have to decide how they want to play it once they're out of the room. While I can't speak for your group, I can tell you what my group usually does in situations like this. When the player in question, usually Scott or Gabe, returns to where they were, they'll quietly start getting word to the rest of the group that it's uh, it's time to pack out and uh, head on back to the hotel or try to find some quiet part away from wherever they're at and they can have a talk. Once they are where they said they were going to go and they are positive that there is nobody listening in, everything that was discussed gets laid out. At that point, they can either head off to another establishment, continue the festivities, or start working up their plan for the next day. All of that is going to be your call. All right, honestly, mostly the call of your group, but you can decide whether or not you want to just fast forward to the morning at this point, and then you can override what they're doing. Next day, they head off to Bailey's farm. As promised, it's about two hours north of Dodge by Horse, and it's a wheat farm with the barn and house in the center of about a hundred or so acres. As they ride up, they notice a woman sitting in a rocking chair on the porch. Once they secure the horses, they can get closer, and the player she met with last night will immediately recognize Alexis Miranda, though she's wearing a lot less makeup than she was last night, and she looks more like the 17-year-old that she is, as opposed to the older working girl she looked like last night she will greet each player by name will shake their hands and will invite them to come inside she assures them they're alone but she will not be opposed to them checking for themselves if that's what they want to do 
If anyone thinks to ask, she explains that Bailey's farm was owned by a cousin of her mother's, someone her father had never met and in fact knew nothing about. So when she decided to strike out on her own, this was where she headed. Her cousin died a couple of months ago and left her the farm. So she continues to run the farm and do her newspaper gig. However, she notes it's not about her or about the farm. That's not why these guys are here. She wants to talk about her father. She reveals she's been aware of them since their rescue of the young couple many months ago and she's been following their story ever since. She does admit she lost track of them after their sighting in Salt Lake City, but then she heard about their multiple appearances in Denver. While she admits to not being 100% certain, she does state she's willing to bet her farm that the group is going after members of the board. Whether the group admits to that or not is totally up to them, but she's got a couple of carrots to dangle in front of them. First off, she knows the name of another board member, and it's not the board member name her father has. She admits that her father was occasionally careless with his paperwork when she still lived with him, and she caught the name of the snake oil salesman at one point. Her name is Amani Lanto, and while her father was a white man, her mother was a Sioux. Alexis doesn't have a lot of information on her, but does note that as of the last bit of information she was able to gather, she's based in Billings, Montana. She found out about Lanto by accident. Her father got a telegram once when he was out of town. She was given it to give to him, and her curious mind led her to start following clues in the coded message. While it was signed snake oil salesman, she realized quickly that the verbiage used, even though it was coded, was definitely feminine in nature. Using the context she'd built to that point at the Albuquerque Daily News, she was able to quietly gather enough information to figure out who the snake oil salesman was. Apparently, she runs the largest cattle ranch in Montana and makes no overt moves to give herself away. Also, from conversations she's heard her father have with Francis Colson, she's come to understand that Lanto is more of a silent member of the board, not communicating with the other person she knows by name very much, and rarely, if ever, offering advice, suggestions, or orders about how to proceed. She notes that if the group really is hunting down members of the board, they're gonna have to go after Lanto at some point. She also notes that while most of the board believes the banker is the head of the board, her father always used to say that it was actually the undertaker. He allows the banker to believe he's in charge, but always seems to be able to get his own agenda through whatever means he needs to to do that. When she asked him about that, her father would just smile and note that the undertaker is a chameleon of sorts, looking and dressing however he needs to in order to blend in, assess a situation, and figure out how to charm, con, connive, or convince others to carry out his plans. And apparently it has worked since the banker seems to be oblivious to the man pulling the strings behind his back. That's the background she has on other board members. If the group asks about her father, she'll tell them the following, and you can choose to make the group roll for each block of this if you would like. Use the different roles we've used before with those target numbers. Her father really does own the Albuquerque Daily News. He bought it before she was born and turned it into the newspaper that it is today. She got her start setting type for the paper, then worked up to reporter and finally assistant editor. Her ruse to leave the paper was telling her father she was going to Denver become editor of one of the papers there. To her knowledge, he has no idea she's here and frankly, she'd like to keep it that way. The reason why she wants to keep things the way they are is because she believes her father had her mother killed. Now, she can't prove it, but her mother was caught in the crossfire between two gangs when Alexis was eight years old. Unfortunately, she died from her wounds. Alexis found out shortly before she left that the Albuquerque town marshal had reported that neither of those groups had ever appeared to have a beef with each other, and he was surprised they'd gotten into a firefight that particular day. Alexis also found out that her father had had some business dealings with one of the groups 
groups, which made her a little extra suspicious. The reason her father would use others for his dirty work is that in reality, her father's a coward. When confronted face-to-face -face with things, he will always try to talk his way through or around the issue. She notes he couldn't even shoot a snake that threatened him once. Instead, he screamed like a baby and ran off. She was the only one who saw it, and she's pretty sure he didn't see her see it. She provides them with his home address, 22 Pueblo Street. She gives a full description of the house to them and notes that he frequently leaves the back door unlocked, mostly because he's got a nosy neighbor living right behind him that reports everything she sees. She asks that if the group is going to kill him, that they make it slow and painful. She'll just eyeball him and tell them that he did a lot more to her over the years than she'd like to discuss and would just as soon he suffer for it. She also mentions his gambling problem. She notes that while he's all about appearances, he never seems to have money, and that's even with the paper being the most successful in town. He loves to gamble, but he sucks at it. She asks one other favor of the group. She asks that once the job is done, they send her a letter for which she provides an envelope with money to cover the postage. She just wants to know that it's over. Now, after that, she's going to make small talk with them, but they're, they're done here, and so are we. This is where we'll leave off with today's building session. Next up, let's dive into what my group did this past game. Of course, we can't do that until we get a quick recap of what they did in their previous session. Our group began their previous session in Denver, heading off to find one Tobias Allen so they could get access to both Francis Colson's bank account and his safe deposit box. They caught up with him and through some discussion were able to convince him to give them the access that they wanted. Then they went to the bank with the safe deposit box, answered the security question and got access and the papers that we discussed two episodes ago. From there, they headed to the bank with Colson's money in it, found out he'd cleaned out his account and heard the rumor that he might be headed for Montana. That annoyed him. So they went and caught Tobias Allen on a stagecoach headed out of town and asked about Montana. He told them Salt Lake City was probably more likely and they allowed him to leave. They left a message for Teresa, wound up meeting with her and she more or less confirmed what Allen had told them. She suggested they meet with Mr. Norwood, who is the banker mayor's right-hand man. They did, and ultimately they got the banker's blessing to eliminate Francis Colson. They took the train to Salt Lake City, checked into the Golden Dragon Inn, and left a message for Abe, as they had been instructed to do. He gave them the clue to check out the Salt Lake City Hotel, which they did, and realizing there was a lot of security in there, determined that a head-on assault of the hotel would be a bad idea. What they ultimately did was light the hotel on fire, with the thought being they'd shoot anybody who looked like security or Colson when they tried to escape. However, Colson took a header out a third-story window and died upon impact with the ground. Colson told them about the Muffin Man's plot against the board, which we detailed in the episode two weeks ago, thanks to Scott's ability to speak with the dead. Now, they thought they got away clean, but they found out they hadn't, so they rode for the border. It was supposed to be Idaho, but I messed up and said Montana. That was my bad. They rode back to Denver, reported into Norwood, and Norwood presented them with the $6,000 contract to kill the Muffin Man. They accepted, and we wrapped the session with them leaving their meeting and discussing their plans for Little Rock. So that's where we pick up with this week's recap. Now, before we start, I do need to point out that this week's wrap-up probably isn't going to be as long as we usually get. That's mostly my fault because I tried to do a hundred other things on game day and just didn't get enough sleep. That meant once showtime came along, I was kind of out of it and my game suffered for it. So, let's learn from this to schedule our game days better. And by the way, that's not just for GMs, that's for players as well. 
The group purchased their tickets to Little Rock, and while they rode there, they checked out the papers in the folder Norwood gave them. We covered all of that information in last week's episode, so I'm not going to repeat it here. Once they got to town, they checked into a hotel in the middle class part of the city and decided to hit up Ma's Home Cooking, owned by Hazel Burkett, who was one of the names on their list. I should note here that the group hadn't put together that Marcus was the code word they needed to use, so they tried using their charm and their wallets, because all five of them ate there, to coax information out of Hazel. They they were unsuccessful. Tyler finished his meal before the rest of the group and decided he would head off to the barber shop for a haircut to shave because, as he pointed out, you can pick up a lot of information in the barber shop. Makes me wish I'd thought of that. Live and learn, kids. For his creativity, I rewarded him by having the patrons of the shop, as well as the barbers, discussing the rumors that Ezekiel Monroe hadn't been seen outside of his house in quite some time. Nobody gave exact lengths, but it was assumed it had been at least a few months. At this point, the group decided to divide and conquer for the rest of the list, and they still hadn't deduced the code word thing. So I knew I was going to have to get creative. Tyler headed off to see Seamus O'Brien at the law office, Gabe and Scott headed off to the Port Saloon, and Max and Aniston headed over to the Southern Charm Inn to see what they could find. Since it was becoming obvious the group wasn't going to get information if I didn't find a way to help them, I had Tyler make a Target 8 persuasion check to try to convince Seamus to tell him what he knew. He did not tell him everything, but he gave him enough of Shaughnessy's story to convince Tyler that there might be something there. Scott and Gabe were able to get Ace Williams' information about how he was mighty curious about how the plantation was making money since it appears they're doing worse on crop production. Max and Aniston heard about all the men in red and black uniforms that have been staying in the inn only to move out a few short months ago. The group reconvened. Everybody shared their information. It was decided that while Scott and Gabe headed to fashionably early, Aniston, with Max following to make sure things were kosher, would head to the post office to see if there was any mail for Mr. Shaughnessy. I forget what Tyler was doing. I think he was tailing one of the groups. Scott and Gabe got Mabel Ungar's story about how the plantation has really never made money due to how well the workers are paid, and noted that her relationship with the plantation's accountant has provided her with a measure of proof as there's a lot of income from dubious sources. Aniston got to the post office and found out there was mail for Shaughnessy and brought the letter back to the group. It was a threatening letter, and while I wish I could tell you more, I basically did it off the top of my head, and due to my extreme fatigue, I don't remember exactly what I said. I know that it was not overt. The threat was more of a subtle yet understood one. At this point, the group agreed... Shaughnessy was probably dead. As it was getting dark, the group decided to head back to the hotel, and they agreed they needed to head back to the law office in the morning and speak with Seamus. That's what they did. Tyler and Gabe went to the office with Tyler handling the introductions for Gabe. They explained what they'd found, and that convinced Seamus to give them all the information that he had. It occurred to Gabe that if anybody had noticed Tyler coming into the office the previous day, they might get suspicious to see him there again. So he gave Seamus $2,000 and told him that if he hadn't heard back from him in 30 days, he was to dispense the money to people on a list that Gabe had provided. Basically, as he said, it was money to send to some of his family back east. Seamus agreed to handle the transaction and he told Gabe he'd have paperwork drawn up by later in the day. While this was going on, Scott, Max, and Aniston were sitting at a table of a cafe across the street. After a bit, they noticed there were two guys keeping a fairly close eye on the office, though they were also being pretty obvious about it. As Tyler and Gabe were exiting the office, Aniston happened to notice two more guys who had apparently been in the area all along but hiding pretty well. They left where they were, crossed the street, and began to casually make their way down to where the group was meeting. When all five 
five members of the group looked their way, they ducked off into a general store. Now, my group not being one to let that sort of thing slide, they went down to the store and entered, and they had Tyler post up on the door to keep anybody from leaving until the group was ready to let that happen. Gabe made small talk with the clerk, and he purchased a few basic items, while Scott chastised the two men for being in the store and taking up space but not buying anything, because of course the guys that were in there were not about to tell them why they were there. And yes, I was trying to do the act like you're looking at stuff, but you don't like the price, so you're just not going to buy and you're going to leave thing. And that wasn't working, and they weren't able to leave thanks to Tyler blocking the door. Scott and Gabe both insisted the men purchase something since they'd been in there so long. They tossed the clerk a 20, and then Tyler allowed them to leave. Realizing that things were about to get serious, and realizing they were probably going to need some heavy firepower... They asked the clerk if, by chance, he had a Smith & Robards catalog. He did, but he reminded them that they'd either have to telegraph in their order and have the money transferred, or mail the order and the money in. They agreed to do a telegraph order and began scanning the catalog for bigger, better weapons to buy. And that was where we ended our session. And that's where we're going to wrap our show today. So, next week will be a building session only. We'll pick up in Dodge City and take our group to Albuquerque. What's going to happen there? You're going to have to listen next week to find out. As we wrap up today's show, I wanted to take a minute to promote something new we've got going on at Bad GM Productions. Earlier this week, we got our website up and running. So head over to badgmproductions.net and check it out. We've got links to both of our podcasts as well as a page with all of our faces on it. So if you've been wanting to put faces to the names that I mentioned during this show, as well as a face to my voice, if you don't watch the YouTube channel, head on over and check out what Gabe put together for us. And I'd suggest you check back on the regular as we'll be doing polls there as well as website exclusive videos. So badgmproductions.net will be the only place you will be able to be involved in some things moving forward. Again, that website is badgmproductions.net. Check it out and tell us what you think. Speaking of checking things out, I strongly encourage you to check out our other podcast, Role-Playing History. Every week we take a game, system, company, or person from the tabletop role-playing industry, and we do a deep dive on it. It's an interesting and educational half hour, and I can assure you it's well worth your time. That's Role-Playing History, which is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at badgmproductions.net. All of the Deadlands classic materials we reference on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Pinnacle Entertainment Group, and we use them here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in purchasing any of these books, head over to their website at peginc.com and check it out. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for royalty-free, license-free music for your next project. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook. And I've gotten this wrong before now. This is actually right. I checked. Facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. That's Bad GM P-R-O-D one word. Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube, the channel is Bad GM Productions. We do have a Twitch channel and we'll start having material on there soon. Bad GM. The email is badgmproductions at gmail.com. And as I've said half a dozen times already, you can find us online at badgmproductions.net. Next week, we see what happens when our group travels from Dodge City to Albuquerque. That should be an interesting ride. But that's next week, partner. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the gaming table. <laughs> <laughs>